Uh, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 4. This is week 4 of our series through the book of Acts called The Mission to Save the World. Have you ever been reading the Bible? I know some of you are doing the through the year reading plan, and, and some actually one person told me he's reading through the Bible in three months. Have you ever been reading through the Bible and you came across a statement that just was so hard to understand that it left you kind of scratching your head asking, what in the world could this possibly mean? Maybe it was something you read in the Old Testament, maybe it was something from the apocalyptic literature, maybe it was something even from the words of Jesus, and you read that, and it just it didn't make sense to you. Uh, there are some passages in the Scripture that are hard to understand. In fact, even Peter, whose sermon we're going to look at today, writes in one of his letters, he said, about the Apostle Paul, he said, some of the stuff this guy writes is confusing. I don't understand it. So it's not uncommon to read and, and find something that's hard to understand. Maybe, maybe we, we read the words of Jesus like, like when he says that anyone who does not hate father or mother, spouse or their own children cannot be to my disciple. And we say, well, like, how, does that, how does that work? Or we read uh, the words of Jesus uh, when he talks about how difficult it is for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. We say, like, I don't get that. So there, there are statements in the Bible that are hard to understand. There are other statements in the Bible that are not so much hard to understand, but they are very hard to accept. And we're going to look at one this morning uh, that is so hard to accept that it has prompted people throughout the ages to conclude, if you really believe this, if you believe this is true, you're ignorant, you're narrow-minded, you're wooden-headed, you're bigoted, you're hateful, whatever it is, it's a statement that's so important that I think we can say that Christianity rises or falls with it, and yet it's so controversial and so divisive that many men and women have actually died because of their commitment to it. Uh, so far, we've seen in the church, we've seen a lot of firsts. We've seen the first converts, the first believers. We've seen the first worship service. Um, we've seen the first miracle. We've seen the first sermon, at least preached by anyone other than Jesus. And this morning, we're going to see another first. We're going to see the first persecution of the early church. We're going to see how the forces of darkness began to push back on this new movement. So this morning, we're going to see three things through this passage. We'll look at chapter 4. We won't read every single verse, but we're going to see three things. The uniqueness of Jesus, the need for Jesus, and the boldness that Jesus, the risen Christ, actually provides. So the uniqueness of Jesus, the need for Jesus, and the boldness that Jesus provides. So let's look first at the uniqueness of Jesus. Let me read uh, verses 1 through 4 of Acts 4. Here reads the word of the Lord. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. 
So Peter and John are in the temple preaching Christ, and they greatly annoy the religious leaders for, for two things that they're saying specifically. The first thing is they are proclaiming Christ, that is, who He is and what He has accomplished. Now notice I didn't say who He was. They're proclaiming who Christ is and what He accomplished. And the second thing they're doing that's, that's bringing about, that's inciting the ire of the religious leaders is they're proclaiming the resurrection in Christ, which most of these religious leaders did not believe in. And so they are, according to the text, they are greatly annoyed. And not only were Peter and John saying these things, but the Holy Spirit was attending to their preaching, and the Holy Spirit actually brought about a great revival in the temple. Uh, We're told that over a thousand people came to faith at that moment. Now remember how the early church had mushroomed in growth. It started, there are, there are 11 people, there are 11 disciples, they're watching Jesus as He ascends up into the clouds and He disappears out of their purview. And then that number then grew to 120. And then when Peter preached his first sermon at Pentecost, we're told that 3,000 people were cut to the heart and they repented, they believe in Christ. And now we're told that the number has reached 5,000 men. Now sometimes when the Bible says men... It's talking about men, adult males, literally. Sometimes it's, a, it's more of a catch-all phrase that refers to all people. We don't know which is the case here, but we know it's at least 5,000 people. And if that does not include uh, women and children, then we, we see it could be as many as ten or 15,000 people have been added to the church. Well, what do you think you, you feel if you are a Jewish leader And you believe, not only do you hate Jesus, but you believe that you have squashed this new movement by killing the leader of it. How do you think you feel with this this rapid growth of the early church? Well, of course, you're not going to be very happy, be very frustrated and angry that Jesus is garnering such a following. I love what New Testament scholar Daryl Bach says about this. He writes, the fact that many are responding to the gospel drives the leadership to pressure the new movement. Jesus' crucifixion failed to stop the new community from making its message heard. The leader's initial strategy appears to have been, if we cut off the head of the snake, the snake will die. But now the head is back, and so is the snake in the form of many new preachers. So, not surprisingly, the religious leaders conclude something has to be done. We have to do something to stop this movement. Now, who who are all these Jewish leaders? I had initially in my notes had a brief description or explanation of each each sort of category, each group represented, but there's too many people involved. So let me just say this. This is kind of the who's who of the religious elite. Anybody who was anybody in terms of religious leadership was here, and they have gathered together in resistance of this new movement, this new movement known as the Way. So let's look at verses 5 through 12. On the next day, so Peter and John have been uh, incarcerated overnight. And the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, them being the apostles, uh, Peter and John, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Remember I said last week that This idea of the name of Jesus is going to surface over and over in Acts. By what power or name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, 
If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, to all of the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. By him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So when Jesus was sending out the twelve, you may remember this from Matthew chapter 10, he tells them, he says, look, I I don't want you to be uh, oblivious to what's going to happen to you. You're not going to be very well received. In fact, he says, you're going to be dragged before the councils to testify Fathers will turn against sons, mother-in-laws against daughter-in-laws. And then he goes on to say, incredibly, he says, all men will hate you because of me. And here we have the quintessential statement that would spark that hatred by all men. It's this, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And so this is the name, and and, and I I think I can say uh, with some accuracy that this name This statement still sparks hatred today. If there's a word uh, to describe our our culture in North America, or at least what we think we are, um, that word may be tolerant. Our culture tolerates just about everything. Women who claim to be men, men who say they're women. The bloodshed, the innocent bloodshed of millions of preborn children. Our culture tolerates just about anything and everything, but what cannot be tolerated is a Savior who claims to be the only way that men, women, and children can be reconciled to God. Even the most uh, purportedly tolerant people will not tolerate that assertion. They will not tolerate such an exclusive claim. Now, what is it, of course, that makes Jesus so unique? What is it that makes him different than everyone else? The Apostle Paul makes it clear in his sermon in verse 10. He is the one whom God raised from the dead. Here's our first point this morning as it relates to the uniqueness of Jesus. As the pivotal moment of all history, Jesus' resurrection sets him apart from every other would-be Savior. This is the moment in history which changed everything forever, the resurrection of Jesus the Christ. Over the last uh, year or so, I've started listening to different types of podcasts. Now, I know I'm way, way, way behind the curve on this, right? Uh, but I just started listening. I've never really been a huge fan of podcasts, uh, just listening to two people, uh, two or three people talk or argue a certain point. If I'm trying to relax or, or re-energize, the last thing I want to do is hear people uh, talking and, and uh, angrily debating. I would rather be in the quiet of my own office, but, uh, but with the influence of my wife and the pastors on staff, uh, I've started to listen, subscribe to some podcasts. This week, while I was on the treadmill, I listened to a terrific podcast uh, featuring an interview with Timothy Keller by Kevin DeYoung. Uh, Tim Keller, if you don't know the name, he's a longtime pastor and author of eight best-selling books. He's, a, he's basically a, might call the spiritual father of a generation of church planters, um, a guy who's actually been very instrumental in my own spiritual development. 
Uh, but he's, but he, he was just diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And uh, I, I'm no medical expert, but I do know pancreatic cancer is about as bad as it's one of the worst ones you can get. And so he's diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And he says, everybody keeps saying Tim Keller is battling cancer. But he said, that's not really true. He said, more, it'd be more accurate to say that Tim Keller, that I'm battling my own sin. Now, he would go on to explain in this podcast that he says, if it wasn't for my sin, I would be totally and completely resting in Christ, even with this diagnosis. And, and the resurrection would be experientially real to me, and I would be fine spiritually, emotionally, relationally. I would be fine if, I, if, if it wasn't for my sin, if I was really totally resting in the reality of the resurrection. All the fears and anxieties and sadness and grief, none of that would haunt me. He said, it's my sin that keeps me from the spiritual realities that would buoy me up. In other words, Tim Keller has doubts. Do you realize Christian leaders have doubts? Pastors have doubts. I have doubts. Sometimes I think we're creeping up on 8 billion people in the world. 8 billion people. Most of whom worship a different prophet, teacher, uh, leader than Jesus Christ. And many of which have actually never heard the name Jesus. And sometimes I think, is it arrogant for us to say that we are right and everybody else in the world is wrong? And I actually don't think that's an irresponsible thought. I think that's actually something we ought to kick around. I think it's necessary. But what always brings me back to a solid answer, what always brings me back to that solid foundation is this. Only Jesus was raised from the dead. There's never been another who conquered death and hell. And you realize in the first century, there were all kinds of professing messiahs. There were all kinds of people who said they were the long-awaited Mashiach, the deliverer, the one who would free Israel from Rome's tyranny. But you know what happened to all of them? They all died, and their followers dispersed, and no one ever heard from them again. Do you know any of their names? I don't. I don't know who they were. But there were a lot of people who said, I am the long-awaited Messiah, and I will liberate the nation of Israel. But they died and they disappeared. Only Jesus died, was buried, and was raised again. Only Jesus had the power to conquer death and hell and sin. Jesus was witnessed by hundreds after He emerged from the tomb. He walked with many. He talked with many. He was actually so real that He cooked some fish and ate some fish with His friends after His resurrection. God didn't just raise him from the dead, as Peter will point out. God gave him a name that is above every name, that before him every knee should bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord of all, either in joyful worship or in rueful submission. So I said I want to consider the uniqueness of Jesus first and then the need. Look at verse 12, the need for Jesus. We read this, and there is, again, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, I want you to notice something. Peter doesn't say there's no other name given under heaven by which we can be saved. He says there's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. 
And by the way, I mentioned how controversial and divisive this exclusive statement is. The reality is all truth claims are exclusive. If a person says that all religions lead to the same place, that every religion is the same, and they all end up in the same place, they are actually excluding every religion that says there's only one way to get to God, which actually most religions claim. So that is actually an exclusive claim. You've seen the bumper sticker, uh, coexist, right? Well, if that's intended to communicate that all people on earth should love each other well, should respect each other, should honor each other, uh, should listen to each other and care for each other, then I can get behind that. But we know that's not what the bumper sticker means. What the bumper sticker communicates is that every religion is the same. Every religion is the same. They all end up the same place. And of course, those of us who believe in Christ and the resurrection, we cannot accept that. Despite being hated for it, Christianity is not, only, it's not the only place where you find exclusive claims. Every truth claim is exclusive. Here's another one. If a person says that all good people go to heaven, they're excluding whom? Bad people. But who's the one who determines bad in that case? It's usually the one who makes such a claim who presumes the prerogative to determine who's good and who's bad. But the Scriptures make it clear. There's no one good. There's no one who seeks after God. Apart from Christ, we have no spiritual good in us at all. So even that claim is an exclusive claim. And what Peter is saying is, there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. But he's saying we must be saved because there's no one who's good. There's no one who can actually make it to God apart from Christ. We are broken, sin-cursed people living on a broken, sin-cursed planet with other broken, sin-cursed people. Now, it's a, it's a fairly well-worn illustration, but I think it's effective. Imagine you had a camera on you 24-7, capturing every moment of your life, every action, every word, and this particular camera was able to pick up and spell out every single thought. So everything that goes through your mind, every thought you entertain, everything you do, every, everything you say, what would that capture, what would that camera capture in your life? It would capture the same thing that it would in my life. Selfishness, self-promotion, impatience, greed, frustration, blame-shifting, a lack of love, anger. We want what we want, and we're not real happy when we don't get it. Why are we so bothered when our kids disobey us? It's because we want respect. We demand respect, and when they don't respect us, we don't get what we want. It makes us angry. Why do we get so bothered by the driver who's going so slow in front of us? Because we want to get to where we want to get unhindered by some slow driver, and when we can't make it the way we want to, it makes us angry. We want what we want, and we don't like it when we don't get it. Is there anyone who, upon having their life illustrated by such a 24-7 video camera, could ever say with any integrity, I'm ready to meet God. I have lived a perfectly good life. I am now ready to stand before a holy God. No one would ever say such a thing. A couple of years ago, uh, Chris Long retired from the NFL. Chris Long was a 
Super Bowl winning linebacker in the NFL, played for a couple teams, and following kind of along the lines of his father, uh, Howie Long, who was a Hall of Famer. And when Chris Long was in the NFL, while he was playing football, he was very active in humanitarian efforts. So he, he started an organization that provides clean water for uh, countries on the continent of Africa that lack uh, clean water. He, he started a youth mentorship program. He started a, an organization that provides uh, uh, food and meals for the homeless. And when he retired, of course, and he, I think he actually he won the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award maybe more than once. But when he retired, everybody was saying about, you know, everywhere, media, what a great guy, what a remarkable good guy Chris Long was. And I remember seeing him uh, put something on Twitter. He said, everybody's saying I'm such a good guy. They don't know me like I know me. Because the fact is, I'm really not that good. I'm not a good person at all. He went on to, you know, just in a, a few tweets, explain how all this hype was, was overwrought and it was undeserved. He said, I know I'm not a good person. He's I don't, not a believer as far as I know. But he was right. To quote the Apostle Paul, there's no one good, no, not one. We've all sinned. And our sin separates us from the God who made us. And this is why we must be saved. And what Peter's saying here in Acts 4 is there aren't third, three ways, there aren't 30 ways, there aren't 300 ways for people to be reconciled to the perfect and holy God. There's only one way. And it is through the name of Jesus, which simply means through the person of Jesus. It's not through the combination of letters. It's not through the arrangement of letters in the moniker. It's through the person of Jesus to whom the name points. Through the person of Jesus, by believing in Jesus' name, by trusting in Jesus Himself and the completeness of His sacrifice for us, His obedient life in exchange for our disobedient life, His death, undeserved death in place of our deserved death. And it's not just the rebellious person who needs to hear this. This is actually a sermon preached largely, at least immediately, to the religious leaders. It's not just the rebellious person who needs to hear this, it's also the righteous person, especially the person who is laboring to save himself or herself. Now, here's our second point as it relates to the need of Jesus, need for Jesus. The gospel is not a mindset, mantra, or, or even a worldview. It is a person, Jesus Christ, the only one who can raise the dead. The gospel, yeah, it's an announcement. It is good news. It's not something we live. It's the announcement, but it's the, it's the news about a person. Without the person of Jesus Christ, the news means nothing. It is the, it is the, the, the proclamation about a person. There is salvation in no other person. But what is this salvation in Christ that pre, Peter promises? What is the salvation that comes in Jesus' name? Well, it is nothing short of a new life, a brand new life, life with God, life in the very presence of God, a life that, that involves a restored relationship with God, where He is our Father and we are His children. I think we often think about salvation, and let me speak for myself, I sometimes think about salvation purely in transactional terms. In Christ, God cancels our debt and He removes our sin. He imputes Christ's righteousness to us. And praise God, all of those things are true. And all of those things will be regularly emphasized at Capshaw. They're all good. But when God cancels our debt, 
He forgives our sin. He bears the curse on a tree. When he, when he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west, when our iniquity is laid on Him and His righteousness credited to us, all of this and more is not done for the sake of balancing some divine ledger, but it's done for the sake of real flesh and blood human beings whom God calls His beloved. The salvation in Jesus' name is offered by and motivated by God because of His commitment to His own glory and His zeal for relationship with the people He made that He stamped with His own image. Because our three-in-one God is a relational God, forever existing as Father, Son, and Spirit, He desires relationship with us. Now think about that. Let me say it a different way. The reason God made salvation possible through Christ is because God longs for a relationship with the people He made. God wants to be in relationship with you. I mean, think about that. This is the creator of the universe. This is the all-powerful and almighty God, and He longs to be in relationship with you. He desires to have that relationship. God is a loving Father longing to adopt His wayward children, not, as one author reminds, a cold-hearted number cruncher, desperate to audit the accounts. No, He wants to be in relation. Now, sure, this salvation in Christ is transactional. It is legal. It is forensic, as we say in school. It's all of those things, but it's not just that. It is deeply relational. It comes from a place of love, from God's own heart to bring into the fold those who are hurting and those who are lost, those who are fatherless, those who are broken. This salvation is the most beautiful picture of grace that has ever existed. Years ago, as a young pastor, I worked with college students in a university town. And if you know anything about college students, if you have any in your house, you know that they are uh, very curious um, uh, that's a kind way of saying they are skeptical, uh, they require uh, reasons for everything they're asked to do, um, they, they want to read, they want to know the reason behind it, right? Uh, well, in this particular college ministry in the early 2000s, God was blessing it and we were adding people and ministering to different people. And within that group, there are a couple of folks who became leaders. There was one young lady uh, who became a leader and she was out on her campus, she was telling people about Jesus, and she was meeting with, with whomever uh, would, would actually attend these meetings. And she had this one meeting that she had on Tuesday afternoon where she, there were a handful of young ladies, college students who would come, and they would sit down with her, and they would have gospel conversation. And this went on for weeks and months and even for a couple of years. But these, these ladies who were there, they never professed faith in Christ, they, they never... Uh, repented of their sin. They never became part of a church. And so she was kind of frustrated and, and a little disheartened. So she, she wondered aloud in front of them, why is it you keep coming and talking about this thing if you don't believe? Why are you still here if you don't believe? And one of the young ladies who was an engineering student said, look, I'm a very, I'm a very analytical person. I'm a very logical person. And she said, you know, I'm wary of much of what I hear about the Christian faith, all this talk about miracles and stuff. But you know what keeps me coming back week after week? It's this message of grace and forgiveness, which I don't hear anywhere else in my life. 
The salvation in Jesus' name is one that comes apart from earning. It comes apart from achieving. It is ours simply by believing in the name of Jesus, by trusting in Jesus Christ and His cross work, His resurrection, His substitutionary work for us. Now, with that in mind, with all that God has done to bring salvation, longing for a relationship with us, sending His own Son, who could ever rightly say to God, why all this talk about Jesus alone? Well, the first century religious leaders did just that. The leaders of the Jewish council, they bring in Peter and John to answer for what they've done. Now, remember, they're not disagreeing. They're not trying to dispute the miracle that took place. There's a 40-plus-year-old man who couldn't walk from birth, and now he's walking, jumping up and down. No one is saying that wasn't a true miracle. No one is saying that. They weren't trying to deny the miracle, but what they were trying to do is suppress any sort of mention of Jesus. What the leaders uh, had a problem with was the preaching that these apostles were doing, proclaiming Jesus and the salvation that He offers. So they were in a very precarious way. They were in a very bad and dangerous way. But the same risen Christ would grant them a sort of boldness that they never expected. Look at verses 18 and following. So they called them, the religious council, and charged them, uh, Peter and John, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and all the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and His anointed. For truly in this city... They were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon these, their, their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Do you notice the number of times that this word boldness appears to describe the approach of the apostles? Now, I understand, because I've experienced it myself, it's hard sometimes to talk about Jesus with people especially people who are hostile to the things of faith. It's hard sometimes to figure out an inroad. Sometimes it's hard to, to do it in a way that's not forced. It's hard sometimes to talk about Jesus. Well, it was certainly no easier in the first century. When Peter and John are released from where they were held captive, they went back and they found their friends, the rest of the folks who made up the early church, and they share with them all that had happened. And what did they all do? They prayed together to the sovereign Lord. And while they're praying together, 
They're united in hearts. They're praying together. While they're praying together, because they were well-schooled in the Scriptures, what came to their mind was Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is a description where it's basically a leadership summit, if you will, where all the peoples of the world come together against the holy God. And they defy God and they deny His sovereignty and they reject His authority and His, His domain. And while, these, while the early church is praying together, they start to think about Psalm 2, which they believe actually characterizes their current situation. Everybody is against God and His anointed, the Redeemer. They hate God. They hate Jesus, that is, the one that God would send. And so they pray to God to give them boldness in their witness. They don't just throw up their hands in despair. They don't just become frustrated and hopeless. They don't retreat in fear to their Christian bubble. They pray. They recognize God's sovereignty and they plead with God to soften the hearts of those who will hear their testimony. They plead with God for boldness. And how does God respond? He literally causes the earth to shake where they're standing, and He gives them a boldness, such a boldness that they would turn the world upside down. Now you say, yeah, but they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, so are you. So am I. They had no more of the Holy Spirit than you and I have. We, we are completely filled with the Holy Spirit. So the question really is not so much, uh, the question to ask is not really, how much of the Spirit do we have? Maybe a better question to ask is, how much does the Spirit have of us? How willing are we to come under the authority to submit to the movement of the Spirit? How willing are we to depend upon the Spirit for boldness rather than our own ideas or our own thoughts? Having seen the resurrected Jesus, they still needed the strength and power that the Spirit of God would provide. So they prayed. And the risen Christ poured out the Spirit of God, Holy Spirit rather. Here's our final point. Boldness to share Christ and compassion for neighbor are not natural inclinations. They are the result of desperate prayer. In other words, what's our natural inclination? It's to look out for number one. It's to look out for myself, to look out for my family. It's not to put myself in harm's way. It's not to actually embrace risk. It's not to put myself out there in a way that I may be rejected. And furthermore, even the care that we might have for neighbor, even our compassion for neighbor is not a natural inclination. It's something brought about by the Spirit. Our natural inclination, again, I think is to retreat. We see what's going on in our world. We recognize the persecution that may await us, so we retreat. But these are not the rhythms that God has called us to. We are servants to a world filled with despair, hopelessness, exhaustion. And we have the news, the only news, anchored in a person that can bring about hope and healing and salvation. It is the announcement of a name, the only name, that brings salvation to a dying world. Well, what do we do about it? What do we do with this news? Well, often we keep the name to ourselves, to ourselves, in fear that we might be rejected or ignored. But what we see here is that as God send out, sends out His messengers, 
He calls all of His messengers to pray, to give us boldness and to use us for His glory. The early disciples knew the cost. And from, actually, many of them we know from, from tradition and from church history that it would cost many of them their very lives. They knew the cost, but they were bold in their proclamation of Jesus. Commenting on this passage, the late R.C. Sproul writes, Where is that boldness among us? Sproul goes on to say, I'm not advocating a brash, foolhardy, obnoxious, or offensive approach. I'm saying that we need to be done with cowardliness and proclaim the gospel with the boldness that characterizes a Christian who has been persuaded of the resurrection of Christ and the defeat of death. We can have the same change in us that was in these men who went from being fearful infidels to valorous saints. Now, let me close with a story, an illustration. We recently, Janine and I had dinner with a couple, and we're sitting there at the restaurant, and the guy called over the waiter, a server, and asked the server if he could pray for him. And the server was a very you know, kind of a busy time, but the server said, you know, that, that would be very nice, and then kind of went on. Um, and then this guy would tell us that every time he goes out for a meal, he asks the server if he can pray for him or her, and he asks the server for five minutes to share his testimony of faith. He has a little a brochure that he keeps with him called My Story, which talks about his own personal conversion, how God brought him to saving faith. Uh, Janine very astutely asked him, because we have two kids, one that's currently a server, and we've had one that's been a server for years. Janine said, hey, when you, when you tell people you're a Christian, you tell them your story, do you still tip them well? And he said, yeah, I always tip well, at least 20%. He said, if, I, if they will give me five minutes and I'm able to share Christ with them, I tip them 100%, whatever my bill is, 100%. And so I'm sitting there thinking, at first, I have to be honest with you, at first my thought was, I mean, it's, these guys are busy. I was a server at two different restaurants. You're running around. You're, I don't know if that really, I mean, is that really going to work? And he went on to say that he's seen countless people who have taken that book, that my testimony brochure, which has his email in the back. They've reached out to him, and many people have put their faith in Jesus Christ because of his willingness just to pray with and share Christ with the people who are serving at a restaurant. And I was so convicted by that. What efforts are we willing to take? What, what creative means are we willing to employ to reach the people around us with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And why is it that we don't have boldness? Why is it that I lack boldness, that I'm not as concerned about my neighbors as I should be? Because we're not spending the time in prayer, desperate prayer, pleading with God to give us a heart for the lost and a boldness to share Jesus with anyone we meet. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask this morning that you would be so kind and gracious to us as to give us hearts that are concerned about and moved by and compassionate toward those who are lost. And I pray that you would spark within our church. I pray that you would spark here at Capshaw Baptist Church in North Alabama a burning desire to see men, women, and children reconciled to you by faith in Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would give us hearts and a willingness and a courage
to tell people. We're not trying to sell people candy bars to give them the greatest news they could ever hear. That they can be brought near to God, forgiven of every sin and every offense, and made to be your very children because of the work of Jesus. Help us to be that kind of church as we see apartment buildings popping up all over the place. New homes, new developments. Will you cause us to be a church that's on fire with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And we'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.